0: A very important suga today about teaching Torah Shebikhtav and Torah the differences between them in terms of uh, the teacher receiving compensation. And through that, we're going to see some uh, various, uh, very important features of the Tanakh and its transmission and pronunciation. So we, um, just to remind ourselves, the Mishnah said, מלמדו מדרש הלחות gadot that if uh, one person made a vow against receiving any benefit from the other, nevertheless, uh, that person can teach the person who made the vow, midrash um, uh, halachan Agada That's not considered giving benefit by teaching these things. However, mikrah, Torah it would be prohibited. For some reason, that is considered giving a benefit when teaching someone Tanakh. An exception to that is, Hu et banavet binotav Mikra even if I have a vow that I'm not going to benefit you anything, I can still teach your sons and daughters. All right, so let's see uh, the differences between uh, these categories. What's the reason why? Uh, if I make a vow that I'm not going to benefit you in any way, I still I can I, I I'm still allowed to teach you um, uh, these uh but not mikra. So why not? Why can I not teach you Tanakh? Because I'm giving you benefit. Midrash But then teaching you midrash oral law also I'm giving you benefit. So what's the difference? Shomel explains that this Mishnah applies in a place where it's customary that. People will receive, teachers will receive compensation for teaching the Bible, but they do not receive compensation for teaching the oral law. Um, Now, this is strange because the Mishnah did not make any distinction uh, between them. Uh, It doesn't say in a place uh, that, this is only true in a place where they, they give compensation for mikra, but they don't give compensation for midrash, and so the if this this sounds like a really important uh, condition, the Mishnah should say something about it. Uh, why does it leave it piska without pascal without qualification? And the answer is ha-kamashmala. And shenotlin zachar, al ha-mikra shareh mishkal al midrash la-shareh mishkal To teach us that even a place where uh, teachers are compensated, yes, for mikra they can be compensated, but for midrash they are not allowed to be compensated. Um so you don't really have to explain this distinction in the Mishnah because this is an across the board rule that Mikra sometimes people teach for free, sometimes people get compensated. That there's it depends on the custom. And so we're assuming okay in a place where it is custom to compensate customary to compensate, then that will be considered a benefit. But we don't have to make any distinction for midrash because for midrash you're never allowed to take payment for teaching oral law. Alright, good. Now, we still didn't answer the question of, fundamentally, what's the difference? Okay, uh, because we're going to link two Pesukim. Moshe says that Hashem commanded him and all the, all the uh, laws that I should teach you. And then he went, uh, the, uh, Pasuk also, uh, later on, say, uh, actually, b- b- Pasuk before that says, the first one is 4.14, the second one's in 4.5 says, Behold, I am teaching you all of these laws as Hashem taught me. So we're comparing Moshe's receiving teaching to his giving over the teaching. Just like Moshe received the teachings, the, the laws, for free. Hashem did not charge Moshe uh, a, a tuition fee, uh, but Moshe received it for free. So too, he is giving it over for free. And that is true for all generations. Anyone who is, who is passing on the tradition from one generation to the next, is like moshe um and just uh, as we receive it for free we have to teach it over for free right this is our uh this is our inheritance it belongs to us it belongs to everyone and you can't charge for it all right now that's true for the laws that moshe was teaching orally but hold on the written law also was given for free right moshe did not have to pay for it uh, and say, you know, here, here's a, a, a payment for uh, buying this uh, this scroll, right? He received it for free, and so too uh, the teaching of mikra also should be done for free. So what's the difference between them? Rav Amar sechar shimur Rabbi Amar sechar pisuk Okay, two reasons. Rav says when uh, mikra uh scripture is generally taught to little kids um and therefore the teacher is not getting paid for teaching that's true but rather for watching the children because he has to babysit might take care of them um, so that's that that deserves payment so that's why the elementary school teacher who's teaching uh who's teaching Tanakh and can get paid, but the oral law would be t- taught to higher grades uh, when the kids don't need to be watched themselves. And so, therefore, you can't say that the um, high school, the you know, post uh, the yeshiva teacher uh, should receive benefit, receive, receive compensation that because he can't, doesn't have this excuse that he's just watching the kids, they take care of themselves. Okay, that's Nav's opinion. Rabbi says, "Sechal pisuk ta'amim." This is the ta'amim, the cantillation notes. That the teacher of scripture is not being paid to teach the actual Torah itself, but rather the ta'amim had to sing it, um, and uh, to explain the, the explain the system of ta'amim. Um, that is not an integral part of the of the mikra itself. Now uh, we have to explain this because uh, certainly. Uh, the tamim uh, are provide a lot of important things, including the punctuation, and punctuation is integral to understanding the meaning of the pasuk. And so, in that aspect of it, um, would be part of just explaining the meaning and of of, uh, of the torah and so that should be included in the teaching of torah itself so perhaps here it means rather the tunes that we associate with the different ta'amim uh, we should clarify that the ta'amim as we know it today in our in our um humashim, printed humashim, um, probably did not exist in that same form in the time of the tamud um, they were developed by the Baalei Hamesorah in different systems in Bavel and in Israel. Uh, three different systems, and we have uh, we have copies of uh, of them. A lot of them found in the Cairo Geniza. Uh, nevertheless, in the times of the Talmud, uh, they did already. Certainly, they had an oral tradition of where to put the sof pasuk and uh, and uh, and all the other um, uh, the other uh, 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 punctuation marks. Um, even if they had different writing systems or whether they wrote it or not. Uh, so certainly it was part of an oral tradition. And the way that you uh, sing them is also going to be part of the oral tradition. So the singing of it, which is different ways to sing it, um, uh, that, would be, that would be part of, that, that's what they can get paid for, right? So pay, pay, they're being paid for the, uh, the song um but for but not for teaching the actual uh letters and words and meaning of the of scripture okay so that's the two opinions very interesting now tenan, lo Mikra. we want to fit this uh, fit this in here fit these two opinions in with the mishnah and mishnah says um that uh, a person cannot teach someone else Mikra if he's forbidden by a vow to give him benefit bishlama so we understand, according to the Biyochanan, that part of the teaching is going to be the teaching of the of the tamim, and so therefore uh, that makes sense. Why uh, and and anyone doesn't matter what age it is. Uh, if I am not allowed to give you benefit, then I can't teach you mikra because part of the teaching mikra is like I'm going to teach you the song and that is something that someone can be compensated for and then if i'm i'm doing that for you i'm giving you benefit that's a that's that's a, a monetizable benefit <inaudible> but if you're talking about the, that the teacher gets paid just for watching the little kids well if i if uh if i'm teaching an adult then i'm not watching the adult so then therefore that should be done for free since a teaching an adult, Mikrah, is something that would be done for free because you don't have an excuse of watching the little kids, there therefore there is no monetary benefit in it, and it should be permitted. So even if I said I'm not going to give you any benefit but with a vow, and but, and you're an adult, I, I still should be able to teach you. So we answer, Bekatan katane. You're right, that phrase also, we're assuming that it's a katan, right? So if we go back to the Mishnah, Ava Loy mikra, we're assuming it's talking about a child where um the teacher uh, in the in those places where the teacher does get compensation, they get compensation for watching the kids. That's why. But if it was an adult, you're right, it would be permitted. Okay, so um that phrase is talking about a katan. Hold on. I be katan sefa avam la mikra katan then how can you explain the last line? Um, so even if I cannot teach you Mikra because of a vowel, I can teach your sons and daughters Mikra. If this phrase Mikra is talking about a minor themselves, then the minor doesn't have himself children. so it's hard to read that. Right? A katan nimken is a katan old enough to have kids? Oh we have to add some words here of explanation. It doesn't seem here that we're actually um mean that we have to add words of into the Mishnah and change the language. But rather, we're adding some words of explanation. The phrase that says, don't teach him mikrah, that's talking about a child. You can't, I can't, if I have a, a vow against a child, I'm not going to give this child benefit. I can't teach the child because in those places where the teacher receives compensation for watching the child, that would be a monetary benefit. However, but the next clause is a new thing. If I made a vow against an adult that I'm not going to give that adult any benefit, I still could teach his children because um, uh, that that benefit would only be, only be going to the kids. And I didn't make a vow against the kids. And so that would be fine. All right. Now, another question. elashonin <laughs> barishon. This paraita teaches that children are not allowed to read a new passage of the Torah on Shabbat. But they can review something that they already learned, so no new learning on Shabbat only review. I think in the old tamu Torah that is in fact what they did on Shabbat they would uh, the kids would still come to the tamu Torah, but they would only review what they did during the week. Now let's see why if we say according to the Bichanan's uh, opinion that. The teacher should, uh, is getting paid during when he gets paid for teaching kids. It's because he's teaching them the tunes. So then it makes sense that he should not be teaching them for the first time on Shabbat because then he's going to be teaching them the tunes on Shabbat. And that would be something that he could get paid for. And you can't get paid. You can't work on Shabbat. So that's why he shouldn't do something from new. But to, uh, to review, that would be fine. But according to Ravu, says that the teacher is, uh, is getting paid for watching the kids, then why is it not allowed to learn something for the first time on Shabbat? And why is it um, uh, per- permitted to review something? In either case, Whether I'm teaching the kids something new or reviewing uh, for them, I'm still watching them on Shabbat and then that would be something that I would receive compensation for, which is prohibited on Shabbat, and so it shouldn't make, make any distinction. Okay, so that's the challenge to Rav. Okay, so Rav is going to say, answer with a further question uh, back. And it's even according to you, what's wrong with teaching um, a, a new chapter because you're going to teach the song on Shabbat? So what's wrong with that? Even to receive compensation for teaching the Ta'amim on Shabbat, is that prohibited? It's in the case of incorporation, right, or swallowing up. Um, you, the law is that you can get paid for work on Shabbat as long as you also do that, you also work during the week. and therefore the payment is for the whole week and then will include Shabbat. So you're not getting paid specifically for Shabbat, that would be prohibited. But you can pay, be paid for all of the all of the work during the week, and then we will just add a little more for the work on Shabbat, but we're not gonna say it's for Shabbat. Uh, so ditanya, has and lo Shabbat. We know that this is permitted from the following braita. If I hire someone only for Shabbat to watch a child, to watch a cow, to watch the, um, the 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 seeds that are growing, then you cannot pay that person for Shabbat for 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 working on Shabbat. Even though they're not doing melacha, right? They're just uh, you hire a nanny uh, to take care of a kid. Um, nevertheless, you can't pay someone for uh, what they're doing on Shabbat if it's only for Shabbat. And for that reason, uh, if someone loses, let's say the cow, hopefully they don't lose a child, uh, if they're watching the cow and it gets lost, the watchman is not responsible because they are Shomed Chinam. Someone who watches something for free is not responsible if it gets lost as someone who watches something for payment is responsible if it gets lost so since this is shabbat and someone is not allowed to get paid on shabbat therefore they are going to be a shomer chinam however if a person is hired for the whole week or for the whole month or for the whole year or for seven days um, and then you can give them the compensation compensation for Shabbat as well. Uh, So you're going to pay them officially for the six days that they worked, even though you're going to add another sixth of that for their work on Shabbat. So they're getting paid more money for their six days of work. So that's how you can indirectly pay them for their work on Shabbat by including it, swallowing it up in their compensation for the rest of the week or for the rest of the month. In that case, if someone is paid to watch a cow for the whole week, and it gets lost, even if it gets lost on Shabbat, they are a, they would be responsible because they're considered a shomer Sahar, uh, even though they're not getting paid specifically for Shabbat, uh, but they're getting paid for the whole week, and that includes Shabbat, so then they would be responsible. Okay, so we see from this um, uh, long Bita is that getting paid for work on Shabbat is permitted as long as one is getting paid for many days. Uh, during the week as well and so Rav is gonna answer what's wrong with getting paid for uh, on Shabbat that's right I can you can get paid for, wa- for watching the kids and therefore it doesn't make a difference if it's uh, if it's the first uh, time they're learning it or a review and uh, even according to you it should be allowed to pay for a teacher because they're gonna uh, teach the, saw, the ta'amim. so as long as you're doing havla'ah, that's permitted Okay. will now explain, okay, there's no problem here. Uh, it's not about the getting paid. Here's the problem and why I think there's a difference, Rav will say, between teaching for the first time and teaching review. Um, so the reason why you don't teach kids um, a first for the first time on Shabbat is because the fathers who are teaching the kids, they want to be at leisure because um, they want to have Onik Shabbat. Miswaf Shabbat, they want to concentrate. Now, when you're teaching a pedek for the first time, that takes a lot of work to teach the kid, because they don't know anything. you got to teach them every word, every letter. takes a long time, and so then you're going to spend the whole afternoon uh, just teaching that uh, chapter. But to review, the kid knows it already, then that's easier work. It doesn't take as much time, so the father is happy to sit with the kid, and uh, they can enjoy and uh, eat and drink and take a nap and have Onik Shabbat. Or a similar reason is not about the father, but about the kid. On Shabbat, the kids are eating and drinking more than usual, and therefore uh, the whole world is heavy upon them, Uh, meaning they're lazier and uh, after a big meal a lot of desserts too, uh, so they're not going to be in the mood uh, to to study something very difficult. And so therefore, they won't be able to study for the first time. But just to do a review, that's okay. Shemuel, who was known to, for his medical knowledge, says that a change in your routine is the beginning of in, uh, intestinal disease, uh, right? Your body gets used to eating a certain amount at a certain time every day, and so, and then you're on your full, uh, uh, full energy. Uh, but if you're eating a lot, drinking a lot on Shabbat, then it's going to be sluggish, you're going to want to take a nap, the kids are going to be tired, and, uh, and they're not going to be uh, in learning mode, so uh, they won't be able to learn something difficult, which is what you need for the first time learning. So Rav says, that's what it's about. It's not about the um, compensation on Shabbat. That's no problem, as long as the teacher is getting paid for what they teach also during the week. And now we answered that question. Now we want to wonder, how come Rav and Shemuel disagree with each other? The opinion that says it's because of the uh, teaching the, the 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 songs the ta'amim uh, that's the problem and you can't that, that's giving benefit because that is a monetary benefit people get compensated for teaching the the songs of the ta'amim the tunes uh, so how come that he didn't say the reason of sechah uh like rav that this is aren't you also um, uh, watching the kids the answer is kasavad banot mi ka bayan shimur. The Mishnah mentioned that one can teach someone's sons and daughters. Now, why would you have to mention daughters at all? Daughters, uh, they're assuming, don't go out. It seems that in those times, the boys would go to school uh, outside the home, and so therefore they needed uh, babysitting, and so you can pay the teacher, whereas girls would be taught at home. The tutor would come to the house, and since the girl's in the house, so they don't need to be watched, uh, the parents are there too, and so since they're learning at home, there is no possibility that there would be any compensation for girls. So you wouldn't have to mention girls at all in the Mishnah, um, according to that reason. So that's why Yohanan does not agree with Rav and says Shechar Shimur only applies to boys and not to girls. The Mishnah is is mentioning girls as well. So he doesn't um, he doesn't think that reason is the most convincing one. For the Mishnah, Uleman Amar Sechar Shimor, Pisuk Tamim. says it's about payment for watching the kids. How come he didn't say that the reason is because of the Tamim? Pisuk Tamim Take out the word Sechar. The punctuation of the text is part of the Torah itself. This is not just an added flourish. Uh, that, uh, that uh, was, came up later. Rather, the, the Pistukim uh, are an integral part of the Torah itself. And so, therefore, there's no way. You can't teach Torah without teaching the Ta'amim. How will you know how to punctuate it? How will you know where the accent marks? That's another thing the Ta'amim tell you, is where the accent mark is, uh, is on a word um and uh and so the the tune is not just a random tune the tune is uh even if if there are different communities of different tunes but they all are in a a similar in the sense that um it's going to tell you to put, put the accent on the right place and put the pauses and commas and periods all where they should be. And all that is necessary part and integral part of the Torah. And therefore, you can get paid for teaching the Ta'amim uh, in all its aspects. And therefore, Adav says, no, I don't think that's the reason that you can get paid for Ta'amim. Ta'amim are part of the Torah and you cannot get paid for that either. All oh, right, fascinating. Now, how do we know that the Ta'amim are part of the Torah? From the following statement, Amar which Rav says, Tamar Rav Ika bar Avin, Amar Rav Chananel, Amar Rav, Ma'edichtiv, vaikru beSefer Torah beSefer beTorat Elohim, meforash v'som sechel, v'yavinu b'mikra. Um, in the time of Ezra, when he brought the Sefer Torah from Babel to El Yisrael and he built a big stage and he taught the whole community, the Jewish community there, the Torah, it says that he taught them in very minute detail and uses a lot of words. So what, of each, what are each of these things? The fact that he read in the scroll of the Torah of Hashem, Zemikra. So that's the basic words. So you have to read the words like we do today. When we read uh, Sefer Torah in Bet Knesset, Meforash Zetargum, explaining it, that is the translation into Aramaic. Everybody knew Aramaic, so they're translating pasuk by pasuk, which was the common custom in Talmudic times, and even even today in Yemenite synagogues, they uh, still do the Targum. Now, to give, it, uh, to give it sense, that's referring to the division into Pesukim. You have to know where to end each Pasuk, otherwise it's not going to make any sense. And understanding of the reading that refers to the uh, separation, the punctuation of the tamim uh, that tell you the accent and the subdivisions within a pasuk, uh, those are essential, right? You see that the fact that they're included in Ezra's teaching of the people means that this is an essential part of teaching teaching Tanakh. You can't teach Tanakh without tamim. Others say that the Yavinu uh, Bamikra, these understandings, are talking about other traditions. Okay, now what are these traditions? We're about to see in a second. Um, but because of this word, Masorot, the experts uh, throughout generations who, uh, who, who, who wrote down all the Nikudot the and Ta'amim and other notes um, in the in Tanakhs the, in, in the that we have, were called Baale HaMasorah. They were the uh, the experts in the Masoret in these traditions, and so we owe to them uh, really uh, the, the 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 transmission, uh, the faithful transmission of the Tanakh with all its details. Was because of uh, because of them. So what are these other masorot? Here we have a list of them. Amar Rabbi Yitzchak, vekarian Velakitiban, Uchtiban velakarian Halachal lemoshe Rabbi Yitzchak explains that uh, the vocalization of the scribes, uh, so how to vocalize the words, um, is going to depend on not only the the, the actual uh, letters because the letter, letters can be um, can be read in multiple ways, but rather the scribes that teach us how to vocalize them. (inaudible) It turns other ornamentations that the scribes taught. Um, And there are words that are read, even though they're not written, and there are other words that are written, even though they're not read. I will see examples of them. All these aspects of the Tanakh are part of the Halakha LeMoshem Sinai, And so therefore, they're an integral part of the teaching. And that's why you can't separate and say, oh fine, you can teach Tanakh, but not teach the Ta'amim. No, the Ta'amim and everything that's associated with this, these um, Masorot, these traditions, the Pisuk Ta'amim, all of this are an integral part of the teaching of Tanakh, and that's why um, one cannot be compensated, according to Rav, for teaching any of these aspects, um, and that's why he says, yeah, you can only be compensated for babysitting the the children. So now let's go through each of these and see examples of what these uh, traditions are. Mikra soferim, aretz, shamayim, So the vocalization of the scribes, a word like Aretz, it can be pronounced Eretz or Aretz. It depends where it is in the pasuk. If it's at the end of the pasuk to show that we're at a sof pasuk or sometimes also at an atnach in the middle of the pasuk. When you want to show a pause, so then you lengthen the the vowels of the word. So usually it's edits in the middle of a sentence, but it'll be edits at the end of a sentence. Same thing with, with shamayim, is spelt with a kamatz kametz um, at the end of a sentence, but with a patach in the middle, <clears throat> it's that I'm also spelled with a patach in the middle of a sentence, but a kamesh at the end of a sentence. Um, so, um, uh, for, for those who do pronounce um, a, a patach and kamesh differently, this would make a difference. So, in general, not just these words, but really any word, this is actually one of the most important aspects of the oral law, is the oral pronunciation. Of any word in the entire Torah Tanakh, um, how if you just you know found the consonants um, in an archaeological dig, and we didn't it was not not a living language, we would have no idea how to pronounce the words, or what they meant, or meant or anything. Um, so that is essential to the oral law. Uh, this, by the way, is a nice picture of. You see, this is what the Torah looks like in the Sefer Torah, and so that's the original without without Nikudot, without, without Ta'amim. All everything else are um, are some symbols that are written symbols to indicate. Uh, the oral tradition. So uh, it used to be it was all oral. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, we find only consonants, uh, no, no vowels, no tamim. And then eventually um, all these symbols were used to record uh, this oral tradition. But certainly the way we pronounce the words, and especially the way we pronounce it differently when it, appear, it appears in different places in the sentence, uh, that is part of mikra sofrim. Next one is called itur sofrim, or an ornamentation of the scribes. And this is I'm not referring what to what you might think, which is like the um, the ornaments that we put on top of letters, uh, like little crowns, uh, but rather entire words and, and or, or letters that add, don't add a lot to the meaning of a pasuk but are there just for style like if it says ta'aboru or te'lech, te'asef. In each of these cases if we skip the word "achad" and just said ve'ta'aboru right and then you will go ve'te'lech, um, uh, ve'te'asef they would mean the same thing and so therefore this "achad" is just um, it's even though it's lengthier is a nicer, more ornamental way of saying it. And so this is called itur sofrim. Uh, it does. I don't think they're suggesting, suggesting that scribes over the years added these words to the original text uh, for ornamentation. I think what they mean is that um, you don't have to read derashot uh, into these words. They could be there just for ornamentation, and the scribes are careful to make sure that you record them. Uh, even though they're not adding to the content, but adding to the style. Kidemu uh, sharim noganim. So four examples of achad, and this example also. You could have just said sharim kidemu Noginim if you wanted to say the singers go before the instrument players. And so instead, by adding a word kidemu sharim achad noganim, first sharim and then Nogenim, even though it's an extra word, it's still a nice ornamentation. Uh, the next one is not hard, but a different uh, type. We say, Hashem, your righteousness is like the, mount, the mighty mountains. And the continuation is, Your judgment is, there's no is like, uh, the the uh, deep depths. Uh, so it's interesting that in the first step it says, and it doesn't say, so why do you need the here? Um, this is just an ornamentation. If you took the out, we would know the same thing. right? When no one's taking it literally to think that the mountains are actually God's righteousness, we're comparing the greatness of two things, uh, but that also is an ornamentation. <clears throat> And here, it being a letter, this kind of makes more sense with an itur sofrim, because sofrim were accountable, literally accountable. The sofrim were the ones that were counting the words and letters, and they were also accountable, meaning responsible, uh, for letters, especially letters that can be easily added in or taken away. Um, And so this uh, kehadereh would be something else that the sofrim made sure to put in, even though it's just for stylistic reasons. Now, a next uh, phrase um, is "kariyan vela ketiban." There are a lot of words that are read, even though they're not written. Uh, in other words, they are—they're um, uh, not written in the text. Nevertheless, you're supposed to read it as if it's there. And here's a few examples: Perat de belechto. The word perat in the pasuk of uh, that that um, begins with belechto. Uh, this is found in Shemuel Bet 8:3. You can look in your Tanakh, or um, you know the way it's indicated um, in any printed Tanakh or in any online edition of the of the Tanakh. And that's good to see how uh, different editions indicate. That this word should be read, even though it's not there. Um, but ultimately, they all go back to the um, Aleppo Codex, the aram Adam Sova. And that is going to indicate it as follows um, here. It had a ben rechho bed sovah belichtoh. So here's the word be-lechto. It's not the that's not the first word in the in the Pasuk, but it's um it's uh in the middle of the Pasuk. So in, in the Pasuk that has Belechto in it, when we keep reading it says Le Hashiv Yad Sof Pasuk. Okay. So uh, and the next Pasuk starts Vail Khod David Mimenu. So you can see that even just reading the Pasuk by itself, it sounds like there's something missing. That uh, David um uh, smote Hadad um, Ezer, the king of Sovah. It's nice, we're reading the Keter Amram Sova, and we're reading about the the king of Sovah, who was conquered by David. Belechto, uh, when he was walking, do, Bin binhar in the at the river, Nehar what? Right? It doesn't say, Ba-Nahar, but this is a smichut. It, it needs another word there. Well luckily, if you look on the side, this is the Masoretic notes, all on the side and the bottom. It says, ba nahar perat kari keri When you read, it's supposed to read it, ba and add the word Perat when you're reading it. So even though we don't tamper with, uh, with the with the letters themselves. And so if you're writing a, writing just the letters, you're not going to put that word. But that's a Masoretic note of the Sofrim that when you read it, you should read it as if the word Pedat is written there. Um, okay, so that is uh, one example. I'm not going to uh, show how it's written for all of them, but it's pretty much the same thing. Uh, in each of these examples, the Ish De Ka'asheri Shal Ish B'devad elohim. Also in uh, Shemo El Bet, um, this the this the word ish here Kashedish al the word ish does not appear in the written but um, there's a note to say you're supposed to read it when you're reading it. Uh, ba'im de nidbata the, the the word ba'im in the pasuk of nidbata uh, has to, is not written but it has to be read. La de peleta, uh her in the pasuk regarding her escape in Yidmiya et dehoged hugad the word et in, uh, in uh, rut, um in rut is not does not appear but you have to read it as if it's there elai dehagoren also in rut there's a bunch of them in, in rut elai de seorim uh, the word elai does not appear there but you have to read it as if it's there halen karyan velakatvan all of these are uh, read even though they're not they, they do not appear even though they're not written the next category of, um, aspects that the Sufrim transmitted is words, uchtavan vela, karyan. They are written in the text of the Tanakh. If it's in the Torah, these words will be in the Sefer Torah, but the tradition says do not read the word at all. Uh, so, for example, the word na in de islach, um, uh, you do not read the word Na, even though it does appear. The word Zot in the Mitzvah, this is a curious one because it's in, it's in Sefer Devarim. And uh, the the word, we, we do have this word, and yet it says not to read it, but we do read it. So um, this is curious. It seems like there was some kind of tradition about this word that we no longer have. Although in all of our uh, books, in Sifret Torah and everywhere, we have ve-zot, uh, So maybe it has something to do with either Zot or reading it ve-zot. Okay, anyway, Yidroch De'hadorech. Um, this is an example from Jeremiah. From I'll show you this example also in the uh, Aleppo Codex. So we'll see one example of each type. Um, so here is um, here's the Pasuk. Be'omra'a, El Yidroch and then that so that the first word Yidroch has nikudot. then it repeats it again Yidroch, but the second one has no nikudot and no Ta'amim, Hadorech kashto. So uh, there's actually no way to read it because why isn't there any vocalization here? Uh, so you, it was not clear how you would read it anyway. Uh, and the side note tells you Ketiv Vela Kari, it is written, but do not read it. Right? It seems. Um, this is an extra word, some kind of repeated word. So all it's hard to know what happened here. Um, was it originally belong? And maybe it was trying to create some kind of anomatopoeia. El yidroch uh, yidroch adorech kashto. Thinking of someone uh, riding or stepping, There's uh, you can hear the sounds of it. Or maybe um, uh, some scribe just repeated this. Um, uh, by mistake and so that's why uh, no don't repeat the word one should be taken out right so what exactly happened here not clear but anyway this is an example of something that's written but you only read one of them and you should skip over the other one even though we leave that one in Um, okay that's uh, next example is Chamesh Tipeat Negev the word Chamesh in that Pasuk in Yeheskel, the word Im de kigoel, uh, another one in Migilat Rut, uh, the word Im in Napasuken Rut, Halen Ketavan Belakaryan, these are all uh, written, but you do not read them. Uh, let's take a moment to uh, analyze some uh, uh, some examples. There, uh, we, we just saw the extreme examples of something that either does not appear but we re- at all, but we read it, or something that does appear and we don't read it at all. More common is a kri uchtiv, that there's a word that's written one way and read a different way. Uh, so an example of that in the root would be ubat vigilit So we read veshachavt, which is a second person feminine. You will sleep. Um, even though that's the ketiv. That's the ketiv. That's the, that's the, but the ketiv, actually, if you look in the Megillah, it says veshachavt. T. Now, the word veshachavti is not actually a mistake, it's not first person. In ancient times, in ancient grammar, there were, that, that form veshachavti was a second person. And But then we updated grammar after some years, even in Arabic till today, you say inti, right? With an E at the end, a second person. Um, but then eventually that became to mean only first person, i. And so you see, this would be an example of the ketiv remembering an old uh, grammatical form and the keri updating it to a newer grammatical form. Um, Another example would be uh, a different spelling. Melech sevoyim in Bereshit is written, written with two yods Um, But the Kari is, we add a Vav, uh, Vav and two two Yuds. And so maybe this is either pronunciation, Siviyim to Sivoyim, or it might actually be pronounced the same way. This is just written chasid Sivoyim, you have to put a uh, Cholam Chaser here, Uh, but uh, we read it as a Cholam male. Um, in our pronunciation, they would sound the same, but it could be uh, one upon a time it was pronounced differently or reflect different spellings. So that's, uh, that's yet another example. Sometimes it could make a big difference, like the Amad law, or law. Does, does it mean he told him or he said no? Um, okay, so um, there's a lot, of, a lot of different types of kri uktiv. And um, here's a, here's a couple more. Uh, one type of kiryachtiv is a euphemism, um, which we have in Sefer Devarim in the curses. It says, "Yakecha Hashem Misraim um, we read it, even though it's written in the Torah, and the reason is the bat is a very harsh word. It uh, means like hemorrhoids, and it's not nice if you're in public in Bet Knesset to say such a word. And so we make it into a, a softer word of uh, general disease uh, or in that same paragraph. Um, isha one of the curses is that a man will, uh, be, get engaged to a woman and someone else will come and we read it, yishak, yishka, and he will sleep with her. But actually, the written, what's written in the Torah is yishagelna, which is a much harsher word. It's like saying rape or maybe even a curse word that is would be impactful in a curse uh if you want you know you want to get that point across but still not kavod sibur to read this in public and so we tone it down to a different word so that is one reason one set of reasons why there is a karyukhtiv another is the most common karyukhtiv that's it's so common it's not even indicated is hashem's name Every time it says yod ke vav ke, we always read it as alef, daled, nun, yud. That's another example. Kri we're not reading what letters that are as written there, but rather you should kiri, you should pronounce it as if it had the, had the letters alef, daled, nun, yud with different punct- different vocalization. In fact, the vowels that we place on yod Vavke vav ke, are not the vowels of how yod Vavke vav ke, was ever pronounced. They are actually the vowels for Aleph daled, nun, yud. That is the scribal convention when you, um, you put the, the consonants of the kri on the side, but the vowels of the kri on the kativ. And now you have to move the vowels, shift them over to the, um, to the letters on the, in the margin. Um, this is not in the margin because it so often, happens so often, but it would be the case in all the other examples. Uh, just end with a very important uh, statement by Dadak who is wondering about um some of the some of the examples of Kri Uchtiv, and he says Dua uh, in the exile the um the most accurate uh, copies of the scrolls were lost and um, and Anshe and Gedolah had to reconstruct the Torah shebichtav um, again as it was. And but sometimes they found machloket besefarim. They saw that um, uh, from uh, the, from the scrolls that they have, sometimes there were differences, and they would follow the majority according to their assessment. No, that's good. So in most cases, they were able to successfully reconstruct anything that was lost in the exile. However, there were some places that they they were not able to uh, to reach a, a a solid conclusion with full clarity. So what did they do? And so in that case, they would put in a Kiri So they would say one of the forms that they thought could be right, they would put as the Kiri. And one of the forms that they thought might be right as the ketiv, and that way they would preserve both of the forms some in there, um, so that the correct one would not be lost. So this is um, I don't think this applies to all the cases, but applies to a subset of the cases. Others are purposeful because it's a euphemism. Hashem's name, also too holy. Um, so the Ekkri encompasses a number of phenomena. You could see from the what uh, Doc just said that not all of them are act, act, literally Halakha Moshe Misinai. You can tell that more simply also because a lot of these examples are from Nevi'im, Yirmiya, Yechezkel, Ruth, all books that were written uh, many uh, hundreds of years later after Moshe. So it can't be that um, there's a Halakha Moshe Misinai that the Prasuk in Yirmiya should say, uh, have a ketiv, yidroch, but don't read it. Um, so therefore, we have to understand that Halakha applies generally to pronunciation, and that would include things like uh, the euphemisms um, and uh, things that are read publicly or are not read publicly. So the, 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 the general categories of the, uh, the traditions that the scribes taught us about how to read those are part of the oral law back to Moshe at Sinai, but along the way, they did have to indicate other things that came up um, in Nevi'im and Ketuvim and uh, other, other, the other reasons why we have Kari Uchtiv. All right, this is a fascinating subject um, and a lot more to say about that. Next, Amadav Achabar Adah, Bemadavah Paskin Lehaden Pesuka Litlata Pesukin, Vayomir Hashem El Moshe, Hine Anuchi Ba Elecha, Be'ab He Anan. The following Pasuk, uh, we have as all one long Pasuk. Let's look at the original. Um, this is, but in Eretz Yisrael, they divided this into three separate Pasukim. So as follows, mm-hmm. Vim ba-elecha be-ab uh, that's who, they, they would have a soft Pasuk. We have an Atnach here, so they counted this as, in Israel, as one Pasuk. Second one, beri Imach. And that would be a third pasuk. So you see this is a very long pasuk and you can split it up uh, uh, syntactically into three and so um, when it sounds like there were in, in some details uh, differences between traditions in Babel and Israel, Yisrael, perhaps between uh, different of the uh, different uh, um, masters of the Baal mesorah of exactly how to divide uh, Pesukim and what kind of punctuation. Uh, so here is uh, one example of such a difference, which is actually important to know because the Talmud elsewhere gives us the number of uh, Pesukim and words and things like that throughout the Torah or sev- several books. And sometimes they are not the same as what we have in our Tanakh, and um, you can explain it through things like this. If it has a different number of pesukim, let's say in the mess in the Masoretic text, it, it always gives you the number of pesukim at the end of a parasha or at the end of a book. And if you find the difference between that and what we have, it doesn't. Nec- it probably does not mean that we're missing a pasuk or have an extra pasuk, but rather it's just that we're breaking down the pesukim in slightly different ways. Baruch Adonai al-Olam. Amen. V'amen.